Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you, choir. That was truly a, a blessing and a joy to hear that music. Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. And we will move ahead in our study of the final subsection of the final section of Zechariah. And what I believe to be one of the most exciting, one of the most encouraging and glorious passages in Scripture. There's few passages that give me goosebumps, get my heart racing as when I stop and read and think about the passage we're reading today. In fact, it might even be fair to say one of the main reasons I picked Zechariah uh, as a book to, to teach through is the excitement, the anticipation, the joy of getting to Zechariah 12, 10 to 14. It's, it's a magnificent passage. It's a culmination passage. And so we will be studying this in two parts, Israel's The Final Salvation of Israel, Part 2. Now, we re-entered our study of Zechariah last week after our pause for our series on membership. And as you remember, last week we saw that Zechariah in his day, still hundreds of years before the first coming of Christ, is looking forward to that future day, the day of the Lord, that, that dominant theme in this text, on that day, occurring Many, many times, 16 times in the next three chapters. And, and we ask, well, what day is that? Well, look at chapter 14. It's the day, in verse 2, where I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle. All the nations. It's the day when all the nations surround Jerusalem. Verse 4, on that day, or verse 3, I mean, then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle, on that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. It's the day the Lord Jesus returns to planet Earth, touching down, as it were, on the Mount of Olives. Precisely, by the way, where the angels said he would return for those who saw him ascend. Verse 9, in verse 8, I mean, and verse 9, on that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and his name one. So let me ask the question, what is that day that this three-chapter section of Zechariah's focusing on. It's, it's the second coming. It's the consummation. It's the kingdom. And as we'll see, and we've already seen, it's the battle of Armageddon. All those events that center around the day of the Lord, that is what this entire three-chapter section is focusing on. And last week, we saw the Lord's deliverance of Israel. And we saw how the nations would gather around them and and how they would think that they had achieved victory. They would think that they had a goblet that they could raise up and drink down. And rather, God would defend them and God would confound their enemies. And he would strike the horses with madness and he would empower Israel to fight back in what would look like it were the defeat of God's people would become their triumph. And we asked the question, how, how can this be? Because if you can reach even further back in your memory, or just one chapter further back in Zechariah, chapter 11, the last word we'd heard from Israel, if you turn, to, turn to Zechariah chapter 11. The first burden of the word of the Lord dealt primarily with judgment upon the Gentile nations, but it ended with judgment upon Israel. 
Verse 11, the shocking judgment. Chapter 11, verse 1, rather. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cypress, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. I mean, when we were studying through this, we said, whoa, why is God announcing judgment on Israel? And as you keep reading through chapter 11, he has Zechariah live out a, a drama of being a shepherd, picturing the great, good, true shepherd who was to come, the Lord Jesus and this shepherd comes and he tends to the flock in, in verse 7. So I became a shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter by the sheep traders. And I took two staffs, one I named Favor, the other Union, and I tended the sheep. And he fights against their enemies. He defends the sheep. All picturing what the Lord Jesus would do. Come and feed God's sheep. Come and defend them and attack the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And yet this shepherd is rejected despised by his flock and sold and estimated at a paltry sum. Verse 12, I said, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages 30 pieces of silver. And what we learned in chapter 11 is Israel would suffer judgment. Israel would suffer severe, horrific consequences due to their rejection of their Messiah. That was why this judgment was announced. Well, only one chapter later, it's now a different prophetic section, God is defending Israel. And we ask, well, how can that be? The last we saw them, they were being unfaithful. The last we saw them, they had rejected their Messiah. And here, God is fighting for them. God is defending them. God is attacking their enemies, keeping covenant promises with them, and pouring out covenant curses on the enemies. And we just t- dipped into verse 10 last week, and we saw the reason is that God would first... Save and redeem Israel. God would save and redeem Israel. So now we're going to look at how that happens. We're going to zoom in, verses 10 through 14. The first nine verses showed the physical deliverance and salvation of Israel, but here we will see their spiritual deliverance and salvation. Let's read Zechariah 12, 10 through 14. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. And in these verses, we see the enactment, the realization of Israel's spiritual salvation as they come to look upon the one they've pierced, as they come to to receive and believe in and to repent and to turn. Next week, we'll see the consequences, the result, but just dipping into even that, look at chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David 
and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So we're going to look at this in, in two parts, this, this grand passage. The first, we're going to look at the origin, origination, the origination of Israel's salvation. And then in point two, we're going to look at the realization of Israel's salvation. So point one, the origination of Israel's salvation. What I mean is this, what is the cause? What is the spark? Why does this happen now? I think the text is clear. Point A, why does Israel at this point, at this critical moment, why do they in mass corporately become Christians? Well, point A, because God sovereignly pours out His Spirit. Notice that. It's, it's, it's unmistakable. God is the one who makes the initiative here. He says, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So when they look on me, when they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now get this. God pours out his spirit. It is God who initiates. It is God who does the work in their heart, which they respond to. And may I suggest to you, this is not unique to the salvation of Israel, but this is how the Lord God saves, period, full stop. Turn, turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. We're going we're to follow a thread here because this is important. God is telling us what will happen. He's giving us these future events, but he's doing it in such a way as to make it clear he gets the glory. When Israel converts, when his people get it, it will not because they suddenly were smart or they suddenly were better people. It's because God poured out his spirit on them. Ezekiel 36. Pick it up in verse 22 prophesying this type of work of the Spirit. Therefore, Ezekiel 36, 22, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act. For the sake of my holy name. You get the God-centeredness of this? This is about God and His glory. It is not for your sake, he says, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So there's the preamble why is God doing this? It's for his name's sake, to vindicate his holiness, for his glory. What's he going to do? Verse 24. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And we saw that predicted in Zechariah chapter 10. Where he said he would gather them as from a whirlwind from the furthest corners of the earth back to the land. And verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean of all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I'll be your God. 
And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant. Lay no famine upon you. I'll make the fruit and the tree and the increase of the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. God's going to act for his glory to vindicate his holiness. It is not for their sake. It is certainly not because they've done something to invite this or merit this. This is sovereign grace. Grace is not deserved. Israel, at this point, does not do some good thing that God responds to and says, well then, I guess I'll pour my spirit out on them. Rather, God takes the initiative in salvation. It's God who removes the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. It is God who opens blind eyes. It's God who unstops deaf ears. Now, jump to John 3. Because in John 3, if you've ever wondered what Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about, when Jesus says you must be born of water and the Spirit, it's a reference to Ezekiel. I'll pour my Spirit on on you, and I'll cleanse you and sprinkle you with clean water. You need that new birth that spiritual cleansing birth. And Jesus makes this point abundantly clear in John 3, 1 through 7. I know this is a bit of an excursus, but I want you to get this. I want you to get that this is in Scripture. I want God to get the glory for the gospel, every aspect of it. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. And so with Ezekiel 34 as the backdrop, which this is the backdrop, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, there's a connection to Ezekiel, unless he's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say this to you. You must be born again. Now get this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Then Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel? You do not understand. So what Jesus has just taught he assumes is taught in the Old Testament. He rebukes Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel for not tracking with him. And it's because he's referencing Ezekiel 34. He's referencing Ezekiel 36. I'm sorry, Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 34 is one of my other favorite passages. But Ezekiel 36. And Nicodemus isn't tracking with it. And what Jesus is saying is, is this, simply, unless God does a work by his Spirit in your heart, You can't understand the gospel. You can't see the gospel. Notice that you can't see the kingdom. You cannot enter the kingdom. Elsewhere, Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. Romans 8, the the natural mind is hostility with God. It does not submit itself to God's law, nor can it. And a little later in John 6, 44, John, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Here's the point. 
God must take the initiatory work in our hearts if we're ever going to turn to him. Look at verse 8 and and unpack what he's saying here. So to summarize, Jesus has said, you need this new birth. You need this experience. You need this change of heart and spirit. And it's like the wind. How is it like the wind? Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. Which is to say, you can't invite the wind. Here, wind, 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 wind. Here, wind, wind. You can't do that. The wind goes where it wants to go. And you hear it sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. Which is to say, when the wind is present, you're aware of it. You feel it against your skin. You hear the sound of it in the trees. But you don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. You only know it when it's present. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying the Spirit goes, blows, moves where he wishes. And when the Spirit is working and present, you can be aware of it. How? People are turning to Christ in repentance and faith. People are praising God. Do you know where he's going next? No. Do you have any idea where he's come from? No. And get the total passive nature of this. It is meant to show our helplessness. We are helpless to make the wind go where we want it to go. We're helpless to invite it to go where we want it to go. Jesus says, so it is with the birth of the Spirit. Notice Jesus never tells John how to be born again. He does in John 3.16 tell Nicodemus how to be saved. You've got to believe. You've got to turn to Jesus Christ. You've got to trust him. But understand that that is what we have to do. That's what we must do to be saved. But if we do that, it is only because the Spirit has first done a work in our hearts. Turn turn back to to, to Zechariah. That's plain as day here. Truly, Israel will turn and believe. They will do it. Not as robots, but as free people. They will do it willingly, gladly. They will only do it because God has poured out His Spirit on them in mercy and grace. God makes this abundantly clear. He takes the credit. He gets the glory. We get the benefit. They get saved. God gets the glory. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me and they've pierced, they will mourn. The origination, the source, the author of this turning is the sovereign God. His pleasure his time, his spirit, his working, and his credit, his glory. This is also in fulfillment of Scripture. Turn, turn to Deuteronomy 10. There won't be many passages that I ask you to turn to, but this is important enough that I want to make much of it because of how front and center God's glory, God's credit is in this turning of Israel. Now, Deuteronomy 10, we find what I refer to as an impossible command. An impossible command. Now, throughout Deuteronomy, Moses is warning Israel constantly, hey guys, you guys are stiff-necked. You guys are stubborn. You guys aren't going to do this. You're not going to be able to do this. Moses is under no misconceptions that the the law is going to get us all the way to the finish line. He he knows eventually it's going to fail. Not because God's law failed, but because the people failed to keep it. Deuteronomy 10.12 And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, and to walk in his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So that's what God requires of you. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven, and the heaven of heavens, the earth, and all that is in them. 
Yet the Lord set his heart and love on you and your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. So here's what God requires of you, he says, and here's what God's done for you. He set his love on you. Therefore, if there's any chance on earth that you're going to be able to do what you need to do, verse 16, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. How do you do that? And Moses just lets that command hang there for 20 chapters. He just lets that hang there for 20 chapters. Turn to Deuteronomy 30. He picks it back up again. So here's this command. So guys, here's what God requires of you. And you're not going to be able to do that with the hearts you have now. This is what God requires of you. Make no mistake. He will require it of you. You need a new heart. You need, you need to circumcise your heart. Deuteronomy 30. Again, notice how Moses is well aware how this Sinai covenant is going to end. He's under no illusion that this is going to get them all the way to the finish line. Chapter 30, verse 1. And he's just finished a series. The Deuteronomy closes. It's Moses' closing addresses with a series of blessings and curses. Life and death. If you're faithful, here's what happens. If you're unfaithful, this is what happens. And he's just finished out chapter 29 with that. And then he tells them, and this has got to be kind of discouraging for Israel. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Yeah, how's this program going to end? Deportation, scattering, national dissolvement. You'll be scattered to the nations. That's how this is going to end, guys. Moses is under no misconceptions. <laughs> you're, not, you're not going to keep this covenant. But when that happens, and you're in all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, return to the Lord your God with all your children, with you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you, just as we've seen predicted in Zechariah. If you are outcasts or in the utter parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Look at verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. You get that? What God requires, he performs for them. So the gospel invites all people, all tribes, all tongues, men everywhere to turn in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel goes out to everyone. Everyone is invited. Everyone is, is called. As Paul says in Acts, God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. Absolutely. Universal. Without qualification. Jesus says anyone who comes doesn't get turned away. What the Bible teaches is we are unable to believe. We are unable to turn. We are unable to love what we don't love. We're unable to, to, to stop loving what we love unless God's Spirit does work in our heart. So God calls us to repentance and faith. Make no mistake, when we actually turn, when we actually trust, 
It's because God has already done the work in our heart. Just as Jesus says in John 6, you must be born again. And the being born again is like the wind, the spirit doing a work. You don't see it coming. You notice it when it happens. How do you know when the spirit's brought someone to change someone's heart? Well, they turn and trust Jesus, of course. Freely. No one twisting their arm. Gladly, joyfully. There's other biblical metaphors for this. The, the veil being removed. Or regeneration. Turn back to Zechariah now. This is, this is not a unique happening. This is the way salvation occurs. God calls all of us to believe. When you evangelize, you, you call people to, to faith. But we know that unless the Spirit of God is doing the work that only He can do, in John 15, Jesus says He'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. Unless the Spirit is at work, unless God in His kindness and grace pours out His Spirit on someone's heart and opens their eyes and removes the veil and unstops their ears and takes out their heart of stone, we know the gospel will bounce off them like water off a duck's back. But conversely, no matter how incompetent you feel, no matter how unprepared you feel, no matter how smart and sophisticated the person you're preaching the gospel to, no matter how entrenched they are in a false religion, if the sovereign God pours out His Spirit on their heart, they will believe. God is, will call Muslims to faith. God will call Hindus to faith. God will call secularists and atheists to faith. And he'll do it the same way by a work of his spirit in the presence of his gospel. God is sovereignly pours out his spirit. And point B, as we just saw looking through Deuteronomy, in fulfillment of his word. This is back in Deuteronomy what he said he would do. You guys aren't going to be faithful. You're not going to love me. You're not going to believe my promises. And you need a change of heart. You need a circumcised heart. And in chapter 30, after this fails, and after you're scattered, I will do for you what you could not do for yourself. I will circumcise your heart. That is what we see happening here. The fulfillment of Deuteronomy 30 is right here in Zechariah 12.10. He promised it hundreds of years ago. And here, in glorious fulfillment, God does for them what they could never do for themselves. He pours out His Spirit on them. So now we look from the origination of Israel's salvation to the realization of Israel's salvation. First, God makes it clear he is the author. He is the one doing this. He is the one acting. He is the one to get the glory. But how does it happen? How, how does Israel come to faith? Well, we're described that here. Two points. Looking in faith at the one they have pierced and repenting in brokenness over their sin. Let's, let's deal with those in order. The realization of Israel's salvation, looking in faith to the one they've pierced. Now notice, there is no mention of faith. It's assumed. The context is this. Israel, even today, is well aware of, of Jesus, son of Joseph, who claimed to be the Messiah. They just reject him. They don't believe in him. They have not received him. They scoff at the notion. And yet here, in response to the outpouring of God's Spirit, they look and see and they get it. They believe the report. Otherwise, the mourning makes no sense. Faith is implied here because what they previously did not believe, now they do. That's the only way to explain the mourning, the grief. He was the Son of God. He was the promised Messiah. He was the sacrifice for our sins. What have we done? That's the logic here. They will look upon me. 
and they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him. In God's grace, in God's mercy, he will cause them to see truly, to understand who Jesus was. And again, this isn't just something that happens to them. When the lights turned on for you, it wasn't because you were smarter than your neighbor. It wasn't because you were better than your neighbor. It wasn't because you figured it out. It's because God had mercy on you. And, and here we learn some things about this Messiah. The most striking is, is this pierced one. Not a common theme in, in Scripture. It links to Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. And it's the suffering servant motif. This is piggy. Isaiah has already been written. And so in Isaiah, we learn that the one who's pierced is the one who bears our sins. He was crushed for our iniquity. We're going to read Isaiah 53 in full shortly, a little later in the message. So we won't do that now. But, but this is drawing that imagery, that sacrifice for sin. They will look, in other words, upon the one who is pierced for their sins. And, and, and you understand that, I hope. Jesus Christ was pierced, was suffered, bruised, beaten, crucified on your behalf, on my behalf, for our sins. The sacrifice that we needed. They'll look on Him when they pierced. Also notice, even in here, the, the, the implications of the divinity of the Savior. It's not clear from the text. Who are they looking on? Are they looking on me or are they looking on him? And the answer is yes. Is, 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 the, is the Savior, the Messiah, is he divine? Is he God? Or is he some other person? The answer is yes. He is God, but he's not God the Father. He's a different person in the Godhead. He's the Son, which explains for the look on me, on him whom they have pierced. The Savior is divine. Even here, in, in principle, God, Yahweh, the Lord, is identifying himself as the one who is pierced. He's the divine Savior, the suffering servant. And what a remarkable prediction. He is the promised Messiah. Absolutely stunning. Hundreds of years before the Romans were on the scene doing crucifixion. Hundreds of years before crucifixion was a practice. Here, God describes, they will look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Just stunning. Stunning in God's ability to control history. And again, let's take comfort from this. Can we be certain that this prophecy, this future for Israel will happen? We can be just as certain in the accuracy of verse 10 describing the first coming's crucifixion. Yes, God is sovereign over history. This whole section in chapter 12 began, declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens, he's sovereign in heaven, who founded the earth, sovereign over earth, and formed the spirit of man within him, he's sovereign over man. Yes, the predictions are accurate, specific, clear. They will be fulfilled. The suffering servant, the divine Savior, the promised Messiah. Now what follows the rest of this passage is a description, detailed description, of the brokenness and the repentance of Israel over its sin. And I think there are things we can learn from this. So how is Israel saved? They look in faith, believing, understanding, getting it, the light's turning on, on the one whom they've pierced. How are we saved? We look in faith to Christ, seeing him for who he is. As the suffering Savior, the one who was pierced for our sins, we look to him as the divine Savior. And we look to him as the one who is sacrificed according to the scriptures. That's, that's what happens. All of that right in there. But 
if you look in faith, if you see him for who he is. And we talked about this previously and in my ABF, the repentance and faith are inseparable. That where one is present, the other is assumed. The flip side of it, how could you not, looking upon this one who suffered, looking upon this one who was pierced, not be broken for your sin? In fact, if they weren't broken over their sin, we'd begin to question, did you really look in faith? Do you really understand? Do you really get it? So I want to look at six characteristics of their brokenness over their sin. Six things we can learn about repentance and brokenness. And, and these are terms that we get uncomfortable with sometimes. You know, we, we live in a culture that has decided that the worst thing that anything can happen to anybody is that they feel bad about themselves. The whole self-esteem movement is, is a one-size-fits-all answer to people shouldn't feel bad about themselves. And I'm well aware that there are cases and times where people feel inappropriate guilt, inappropriate shame, and we want, to, we want to remedy that. But there are other times when people act shamefully when the best thing for you is to feel guilt and shame and brokenness. I mean, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning with the Beatitudes, says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We read in Psalm 51 the, the sacrifices of God. What's God looking for? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. So yes, there's false guilt and there's false shame that can be imposed upon people. But make no mistake, true brokenness and repentance is a gift and a grace from God. We're going to see Israel's profound mourning and it's going to lead to their joy and their deliverance and their salvation. Sometimes when we present the gospel, we can sort of breeze over sin. You know, we all make mistakes. We all do things that are wrong. Israel gets this here. There is a, a cataclysmic understanding of their sin. And the scripture spells it out in detail for our instruction. So let's look at it. First thing to notice in their brokenness and repentance over sin, is it is God-centered. It is God-centered. Now, as best as I can reconstruct the timeline by harmonizing chapter 12 and chapter 14, chapter 12 speaks of the deliverance of Israel, but in 14 we learn in, in verse 2 that before the Lord delivers them, they will appear to be conquered. Look at 14.2. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city shall be taken. The houses plundered. The women raped. Half the city shall go into exile. But the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out to fight. So initially, as the nations gather on Israel, they will appear to have victory. This goes back to the notion of the cup that they raise up in, in triumph and drink down and undo themselves. So I would place this conversion in between 14.2 and 14.3. The reason why I placed that there is if Israel were believing, if Israel were repentant, they wouldn't be defeated. Conversely, I don't picture the Lord rising up to fight for an unbelieving and unrepentant people. So my best guess would be 12.10 takes place in between 14.2 and 14.3. I could be wrong, but that'd be my best guess. But if that's true, then understand this. Israel has every reason to mourn for themselves, don't they? Their women raped, children slaughtered, 
taken again, not again, into exile. Half the people taken captive out of the city. And yet look at Zechariah 12.10. What, who and what are they mourning? And they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. They shall mourn for him. You get that? When we understand the depths of our sin, it, it dwarfs our own problems. Here are people who have every reason to be sorry for their condition, every reason to mourn what is happening to them. They've seen with their own eyes the rape, the slaughter, the bloodshed. And yet when the gospel clicks, they mourn for him, not for themselves. They mourn for him. Repentance is God-centered. We don't have time to go there, but 2 Corinthians 7 talks about the sorrow of the world that leads to death. There are people who are sorry they got caught, sorry they got messed up again, sorry for the consequences of their sin. True, godly repentance is sorry for God. Sorrow for His sake. Lord, I am so sorry I did that to you again. That you had to bear my sin. That I did that to you. Even though they're not this generation of people didn't actually pierce Him, they recognized that it was their sins. They were the, they were the cause It was because of your and my guilt that he had to die. What have we done? It's God-centered. Their conviction of sin dwarfs, overshadows their own predicament. They mourn for him. But notice also that it is a profound, it is God-centered, it is profound. This isn't some momentary thing. I am so, so sorry. Next Read, they mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Let me ask you, maybe you have had the terrible event of losing a child or you know somebody who has. Is that something people get over quickly? Is that something that you you spend a minute or two in commemoration of that and then you move on? No. This is profound brokenness. Profound. In Jeremiah 6, 26, we get somewhat of a description of this. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth, roll in ashes, make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lament. Or in Exodus 11, we read of the account of when the firstborn in every house that didn't have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost was slaughtered. This is a profound brokenness and repenting. Third, it's national. It's a national conversion and a national repentance. Verse 11, On that day the morning in Jerusalem will be as great as the morning in Hadad Ramon, in the plain of Megiddo. And what Zechariah is referencing is the death of godly King Josiah. Godly King Josiah foolishly goes out to stop. Pharaoh Necho, a leader in Egypt, wanted to pass through Israel on his way up to make war with another country. And for some reason, we can't understand, Josiah forbids to let him pass through. And then Pharaoh Necho says, I don't want to fight you. I don't want to kill you, but I got to go. And so there's a battle. And in 2 Chronicles 35, we read in verse 23, the archers shot King Josiah. And he died. and was buried in the tomb of his fathers. All Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and all the singing women have spoken of Josiah and their laments to this day. It's a national mourning. 
This was a national tragedy. Maybe we could liken it, if you want to think of anything, to the assassination of JFK and how that just shocked our entire nation. It was a national mourning, national repentance, national brokenness. But also, it's universal, point four. So it's God-centered, it is profound, it is national, and it is universal. What we begin to see next are the various tribes and families singled out. And the point is this, from every level and strata of society, from the kings and his household all the way down to the common folk, from top to bottom, there is a repentance and a brokenness. Uniform. Verse 12. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the house of David by itself. So the kings and his household, guilty. Repentant and broken. The house of Nathan by itself. Now this is either possibly referencing the prophets, Nathan the prophet who confronted David, or, and I think more likely, you've got these four references to to David, Nathan, Levi, and Shemei. Now, Shemei is the grandson or the son of Levi. No, is the grandson of Levi, and Nathan is David's son. So what you likely have is two representatives from the kingly class and two representatives from the priestly class. Either way, what we get in verse 14 is makes it clear. And all the families that are left, so it's not just David's household and just the priests, but what we're picking out here is the people, if there's anybody who doesn't, you think, might not need to repent. Well, it would be the kings and the priests because they're holy and they're the anointed ones of the Lord. Nope, them and everyone below them. It's universal. It reminds me of, of, the, of the repentance of the people in Nineveh. Jonah 3, 5 to 6, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself in sackcloth and sat in ashes. In this detailed list of every family, it's it's making it clear this isn't some generalization. No, every family, every layer, every household. Whereas Paul says in Romans 11, in this way all Israel will be saved. It's universal. Point five, though, even though it's national, and even though it's universal, point five, it is individual. Someone else can't repent for you. Someone else can't believe for you. You have to do it yourself. So even though they did it together, they did it individually. And we see the divisions here, even households being separated off into separate groups, husbands and wives separated as they each deal with God, as they each get on their knees and deal with their brokenness and their sin, as they each look individually to the Messiah. Someone else can't do this for you. No one else can believe for you. No one else can turn to Christ for you. You have to do it yourself. You have to turn and look. And you have to be broken over your sin. And you have to trust the Savior. And you have to cry out to God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We can do it together, but we must each do it individually. Individually. And finally, it is prophesied. Now, would you please now turn to Isaiah 53? There's a remarkable point that I first heard a few years ago at the Shepherds Conference, and Charles Feinberg in his excellent commentary pointed out even more. But we're, we're well familiar with Isaiah 53, the suffering servant passage. We're going to read the entire chapter in its entirety in just a moment. But I want you to notice one detail. One detail. And that's the question is this, who is speaking? Who is speaking? Let's read it, and then we'll come back to that question. Isaiah 53. 
Verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed He was afflicted, yet he opened out his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered? He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and is numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So there's this famous, wonderful, prophetic passage. Who's speaking? Who's speaking? It's not Isaiah. It's we. Consistently through this chapter, plural, first-person pronouns. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. He bore our iniquities. And Charles Feinberg argues, and I think he's right, that Isaiah is prophetically revealing to us the very confession that Israel will make in the future. When they look on him they've pierced, They will get it, and they will mourn, and they will repent, and they will grieve, and they will speak words. Possibly these very words are things that sound like them. He he writes it this way. In that hour, with enlightened hearts and broken spirits, they will inquire of one another, which ones of us believed the report made to us? To which ones of us did the mighty power of God disclose itself? So few of us, because he appeared so lacking in promise. He, he had no outward attraction that our carnal hearts could then delight in, so we desired him not, with the result that he was despised, cut off from our company, knowing only griefs and pains, and we went our way, turning our gaze from him. But marvel of it all, he was bearing and enduring our sorrows and our griefs all the while we thought he was being stricken and cursed by God. No, 
He was smitten because we were sinful. For he was wounded because we had transgressed the law and the will of God. He was crushed to death because of our iniquitous ways. The scourge of God was upon him so that we might have spiritual healing and peace with God. We all went senselessly on in our own sins, deliberately and willfully, and God has caused to come upon him as an avalanche. The sins of us all. What oppression and merciless treatment he suffered, yet he endured them so patiently and submissively, and yet we did not lay it to heart that he was suffering all this while because it was due to us. This... this getting it, this clicking, this understanding of what the Lord Jesus has done for us, what they will understand. It will break them. It will shake them. It will undo them. And it will prepare them for transformation and redemption. Because the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. He doesn't turn that away. Next week, we will see the result of their salvation. And it starts with cleansing from sin And we'll end in chapter 14 with the Lord Jesus returning and fighting for them. I just want to close by by asking you, have you looked to the Lord Jesus in this way? Have you seen him for who he is? Not a good man, great teacher, the one who is pierced for you and by you for your sins, because of your sins. The divine Son of God, God himself, as predicted by the Scriptures, have you ever known the feeling of remorse and brokenness over your sin, over what you have done to Him, over what He had to suffer on your behalf? Have you ever felt that? Have you ever known that? Or are you too consumed with your own problems, your own troubles, your own griefs, your own sorrows? The hour of salvation is today. God calls all men everywhere to look, to come, to trust, to turn. Even as we know, it is only as it is enabled by His Spirit. I just want to close in prayer as I call the choir up for our closing doxology. Let's pray. Lord God, we marvel at Your wisdom. We marvel at Your power and Your sovereign hand. That You declare the end from the beginning. Truly You do. That You have not forgotten Your promises to the fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. You will not utterly abandon your people. Even now as we live during the times of the Gentiles, as, as unnatural, wild olive branches grafted into the tree of promise, we look forward with joy to the day when the natural branches will be grafted back into the day when all Israel is saved. And Lord, we just want to give you the glory for our salvation. Lord, We know that it's not in us any good thing, any part in turning to you, any part that would desire you That all of us, like Israel, would view you as unattractive. Your son is cursed and stricken by God, but your spirit worked on us. Your spirit convicted us. Your grace poured out on us like a river. And you saved us. So Lord, we want to give you that glory and not take it for ourselves. Salvation is fully and truly from the Lord. You are the planner of it. You are the one who brought it to pass, and you are the one who has drawn us and opened our eyes and brought us to life and light. You've given us each other in your word. And so, Lord God, now as we, as we leave this time, we just want to give you the glory, and we pray that you would give us more grace and more grace and more grace. In Jesus' name, amen.